there's a stark warning tonight that millions of children in Yemen could be pushed to the brink of starvation unless international aid is dramatically stepped up. The country faces the world's worst humanitarian crisis, with the COVID-19 pandemic compounding the effect of five years of civil war. And just like we need a unified national response to COVID-19, we desperately need a unified national response to the climate crisis. Jamal Khashoggi's murder opened a window on Saudi Arabia, and it's up to us to make sure we look into that and, and find out just what is going on. On Thursday, February 4th, in his first speech dedicated to foreign policy, President Biden declared, America is back. But from the deadly conflict in Yemen to the military coup in Myanmar, and from confronting climate change to thwarting Russian cyber attacks, President Biden faces a daunting array of foreign policy priorities. After a turbulent transition of power, where should the U.S. start? What foreign policy priorities must the Biden administration address first? This is State of the World, produced by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. I'm your host, Amanda Jolly. And on this episode, we're talking with Senator Chris Murphy, Senator from Connecticut and member of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, about the new foreign policy agenda for the United States. This episode is moderated by CEO Megan Torrey. So thank you again, Senator, for, for joining us. And I'm gonna just jump right in. We're in a time of rapid change. We have a new US administration taking the helm that's going to uh, you know, have a, a stark departure from those of the, the previous administration. The coronavirus pandemic continues to threaten the health stability and economies of the world. Social movements for justice are challenging institutions that underpin our nation and the world. Can you set the scene for us um, in the midst of everything? Where, where do we start? What are the top foreign policy priorities that the Biden administration must address first? Well, uh, Megan, thanks for having me. Great to be back uh, with the council. Um, thanks for all the great work that you do to elevate uh, these issues and to promote you know, public dialogue uh, outside of Washington, D.C. Um, listen, I know it sometimes feels cliche when we say that, you know, all domestic policy is foreign policy, but in this case, um, it's never been truer. Unless we get our hands wrapped around coronavirus here in the United States, um, we really have very little ability to um, be able to defend our interests abroad. Um, China is walking around the world today making the claim that democracy isn't worthwhile because look how quickly we were able to get our uh, hands around coronavirus and look at all the democracies, the United States and those in Europe that are having much more trouble. Um, and so we you know, have to show uh, now with Biden firmly in control, the ability of a democracy with the emergency powers that we grant executives inside that democracy, um, the ability to be able to turn the corner on the virus. It has real practical considerations as well. I literally just finished up a conversation with my foreign policy advisor about the inability of members of Congress to travel, um, to represent the United States abroad because of coronavirus restrictions. So um, this is a moment where you know we won't be very uh, successful in effectuating foreign policy goals unless we get our domestic crises in order. Um, but um, you have to walk and chew gum at the same time. So that means there is a sort of early lineup for the Biden administration. Uh, first and foremost, it's about rebuilding alliances um, in a multipolar world today. You just can't, you know, defend yourself unless you have friends. And, you know, we saw that 
with respect to the disastrous economic negotiations with China. The United States didn't really get anything over four years of the Trump administration because we were going it alone. So, you know, putting ourselves back in a position specifically with respect to the transatlantic alliance where we have common purpose, common cause, common strategy, really important. And I think you sort of saw a sliver of what's to come um, late last night, early this morning, when the G7 put out um, a, a very strong statement on Myanmar. And, and um, well, maybe, you know, it, it didn't have sort of specific reference to sanctions, as some might have liked. Um, this is the kind of communication, this is the kind of solidarity that's um, really important um, uh, for the United States moving forward. Um, obviously, President Biden's done some things already um, to uh, reestablish our global reputation, reentering Paris and the WHO. Uh, I hope that the Iran nuclear agreement um, is on that list and just around the corner. Um, we've got to sort of show um, the priority we place on diplomacy and and, and President Biden has already begun uh, to reaffirm that commitment, but there's more to be said. Um, and then lastly, I think Congress has a real responsibility to better equip this administration with tools to succeed. Hopefully we'll get into this conversation later on. But, um, you know, every American president is going to fail internationally if we spend 20 times as much money on the military as we do on diplomacy and international aid. Um, today, the Threats that are posed to the United States are by and large not conventional military threats. Witness 400,000 Americans dead from a foreign invasion. Um, it was just a virus rather than an army. I think a lot of Americans are looking at the way we spend money and saying, does it really make sense to spend $700 billion on the military and $10 billion on global public health, given what we just went through? We've got to commit ourselves to a reallocation of spending, that's that's a job Congress needs to step up to the plate and do. So you just mentioned the Paris Climate Accords. And one of the things that you talk a lot about is, is climate change and climate change policy. And you recently wrote um, an article in Foreign Policy that America must reclaim the global lead on climate change. Um, how much ground do you think that we've lost? Um, and what are some of the specific steps we can take as a nation to reestablish leadership on climate change? Well, I, I think we've lost a tremendous amount of ground. And um, of course, we're, we're dealing with a problem that has a clock on it, right? There is a point at which there's so much global greenhouse, there's so much greenhouse gas um, pollutants in the atmosphere um, that you cannot reverse the trend in a way to save the planet, right? We've got about a decade. If we don't make significant changes in the next 10 years, my kids won't have the opportunity to fix this problem. So there's real urgency. Uh, and the difficulty here is that, well, Biden is going to try to come back to the table. He's going to try to pass something domestically to give ourselves the moral authority to lead internationally. The rest of the world right now just doesn't trust the United States because they look at our politics with, you know, half of the political establishment in Washington, D.C. effectively denying that global warming exists. And they say to themselves, OK, so I'm going to make a deal with the Biden administration. But as soon as Republicans get back in charge, they're going to pull out. Um, and so until we fix our domestic politics, until we sort of defeat the global warming deniers, it makes it really hard for President Biden or Tony Blinken to be able to go out and, you know, build an international consensus. They will try. They may be successful. It will help if we pass something um, domestically and, frankly, something that can't be reversed. 
right? So I would recommend the Biden administration, listen, I'm for carbon repricing, cap and trade, carbon tax, but I'd probably advocate that we spend more time doing green infrastructure investment, right? Building wind turbines and solar panels and geothermal farms, because that's the kind of commitment that can't be deconstructed. And, and and that might make the world a little bit more convinced that we're in this for the long haul. So, yeah, I, I think there's enormous damage that's been done, continues to be done so long as our politics on this issue continue to be uh, so uh, catastrophic. So uh, let's pivot to Yemen for a minute, because it's an issue that you have been speaking about for a long time. And we know that during Secretary of State Blinken's um, you know, confirmation hearing, he affirmed that the Biden administration would end U.S. support from the military campaign led by Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Um, you've addressed this need since, since you know, 2015. Uh, why is this an, a policy imperative for the U.S.? Well, because the civil war in Yemen has been a national security disaster in every single way for the United States. We're a participant in the civil war. We um, provide the Saudis with all sorts of assistance, including the weaponry and the bombs that they drop uh, and use. Uh, and um, what we know is that inside Yemen, a place where 100,000 kids have died of starvation and disease, 17,000 civilians have died, many of them deliberately being targeted by these bombing campaigns, um, they blame the United States. Uh, they blame Saudi Arabia too, but there's a U.S. imprint on every civilian death inside Yemen, and we are radicalizing a generation of Yemenis against the United States. And our participation in that war is being used as bulletin board material for terrorist recruiters all over the globe. In addition, AQAP, which is the wing of al-Qaeda that has the clearest designs to attack the United States, they take advantage of the Yemen civil war. They control territory. They are able to uh, organize and potentially mount plans to attack the United States. Um, so, uh, you know, from a security perspective, this is a disaster. But um, just from a moral perspective, the United States should never be part of a military campaign that is violating openly uh, human rights laws. Uh, and so it's really important for us to get out of this war um, because it, it is a, on its own terms, national security and, and a national security humanitarian disaster. Um, but it just makes the United States look so terrible and ultimately provides, as I said, recruitment material for, you know, the worst of the extremist organizations all around the world. By the way, we need to have a broader conversation about reorienting our policy towards the Gulf, towards Saudi Arabia, towards UAE. Um, but this is the place that we should start. Yeah. Do you want to expand a little bit on how how do we reset that that Saudi relationship? How do we reset that that relationship with UAE? Well, you know, today, um, you know, we export uh, more oil and gas than we import. I mean, we are just not as reliant on Saudi and Emirati produced natural resources as we were, you know, when Jimmy Carter famously said that, you know, any security attack on our partners in the Middle East would be perceived as an attack against the United States. Um, and so, you know, we, we just right now are in a different position where we are sort of less reliant on that region. In addition, the record of, in particular, the Saudis on human rights is getting worse and harder for us to justify through silence. We look hypocritical when we're trying to sort of protect democracies in other parts of the world. And we're sitting by idly as the Saudis chop up journalists and imprison women who are just seeking the right to drive a car. Um, so, you know, we need to more broadly desecuritize de our relationships in the Middle East. We have to make a decision that 
it really isn't in our long-term interest to play such an active role in the set of proxy wars between the Iranians and the Saudis. And, and it doesn't mean that we aren't still partners with the Saudis and the Emiratis. It means that we just aren't backing every single one of their security plays in the region, especially when their security objectives don't align with our security objectives. I think we just have to be much more choosy than we have been in the past about when we choose to do business uh, with Gulf nations. And we have to you know, draw a harder line and say, if you want to be security partners with the United States, then you've got to change your record on human rights. You've got to sue for peace in Yemen. Um, we should sort of call their bluff. A lot of times folks say, well, if the United States doesn't you know, sell drones to the Emiratis, somebody else will. There's still no substitute for the United States as a security partner. The Chinese really don't want to get their you know, hands that dirty in the security contests of the Middle East. The Russian stuff they sell is not comparable to the stuff we sell. Um, we can draw a, a, a firmer line when it comes to what we expect from our partners in the region for security partnership with the United States. What do you think the U.S. approach should be to the situation that is happening now? And we know that you have, um, you know, met with Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, in specifically talking about her treatment of um, the refugees. But, uh, you know, what is your take on what is happening? Well, listen, Myanmar is, a, as everybody knows, a very complicated country, a country that had this very slow, torturous transition to democracy, a country where even before this coup, um, the military played an outsized role in the administration of the country. Um, what is necessary right now is um, multilateral cooperation. That's why that G7 statement is so important. If we're going to you know, move forward with a conversation about, for instance, sanctions on the individuals who enacted this coup, then we need to do it in a way that squares with our allies. It will be feckless if it's the United States alone. Um, it stands, though, in context. What's happening in Myanmar is, of course, not unfamiliar because we've seen a backsliding from democracy all over the world, in Philippines, in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland. Um, and it is not coincidental to the period of time over the last four years where the United States just disappeared when it came to democracy promotion, where we cozied up to dictators, essentially signaling to would-be military autocrats that you have a future with the United States if you sort of shove democracy aside. President Biden's got a job ahead of him to sort of rally the world again around promoting democracy. And then once back to my hobby horse, uh, Congress needs to produce new tools for the administration to use to promote democracy. In a fledgling democracy like Myanmar, one of the big issues there is information. Um, you know, are there independent, objective journalists, right, who can cover what's happening to the Rohingyas, who can tell the story uh, of why democracy is important, who can root out corruption? That it's really hard to find those sources in a place like Myanmar. Um, the United States can help, and so that's why standing up and improving upon our capacities to um, project independent journalism through the Global Engagement Center, for instance, or the State Department are really critical in Myanmar and in all of the other cases around the world that look a little bit like Myanmar. Considering the lack of clarity during the Trump administration about its foreign policy goals on the African continent, 
What can we expect from the Biden administration about U.S. foreign policy priorities for Africa? Do you think they'll be focused on strengthening business and trade relationships or limited to sort of advocating for de- uh, democratic governance alone, or, or will it be something else? I'm not, uh, maybe not in a position to sort of predict what Biden's Africa policy is, uh, is going to be, so I won't necessarily speak for uh, the, the president or his uh, team. Um, but what I know is this, there is um, tremendous opportunity on the African continent for the United States to be a, a player in economic development and democracy promotion. Uh, again, it is just a matter of whether we are willing to deploy the tools necessary to be a partner there. No secret why China has a ton of influence on the continent. Um, they're willing to put serious money um, in uh, to economic development projects, often with strings attached to it that probably in the long run don't make that partnership worthwhile. But these nations are crying out for an alternative to Chinese investment, and they don't have it today. Um, we have reformed our international development finance capacity in the United States, now called the Development Finance Corporation. But it is still a shadow of the Chinese state function with respect to international development finance. So we need to supersize uh, our development finance corporation here in the United States. So it really can compete with China on uh, and in Africa for development opportunities. Um, similarly, you know, we need to reckon with how we spend um, other kind of assistance money. Right now, we have this big slush fund at the Department of Defense. Um, a lot of that money ends up going to Africa um, in order to securitize um, problems that are really political in nature. So we send a lot of security aid to unstable places that often ends up in the hands of regimes that are engaged in the brutal treatment and repression of people, which gives rise to instability. Instead of spending billions of dollars in unaccountable security assistance on the African continent, why not repurpose and reprogram that money um, for economic development, democracy aid, anti-corruption programs? So I think there also has to be a broader reorientation of, of programming there as well. So you had mentioned that you hope the U.S. rejoins the JCPOA. What do you see as the best case scenario going forward for U.S. Um, for the U.S. and for security in the Middle East? We um, we had done something remarkable at the end of the Obama administration. We had brought together the United States, Europe, China, and Russia on a common Iran policy. That policy began with a agreement in which the Iranians uh, allowed unprecedented and unparalleled international inspection of their nuclear energy program and a commitment to not develop that program into a weapons capacity. And it was set up so that having secured that multilateral agreement on nukes, we could then move to tackling ballistic missiles and Iran's support for terrorist groups. Um, We never were able to take that next step because Trump pulled us out of the nuclear agreement. So to me, um, there's great merit in reassembling the JCPOA. Now, that's not easy, um, but it is also not impossible. I I support a compliance for compliance offer to the Iranians in which we commit to get back into compliance with respect to sanctions, and they agree to get back in compliance with respect to the restraints on the nuclear program. Um, And then we use that coalition reassembled uh, to press them on ballistic missiles, to press them on support for terrorist groups. But again, 
it all sits in context, right? I mean, I um, I do sit down and talk to uh, Foreign Minister Zarif from time to time, and I take everything he says with a grain of salt. Um, but he does regularly remind uh, those of us who meet with him um, that his ballistic missiles are pointed at Saudi Arabia. And so long as we continue a record pace of arms sales to the Saudis and the Emiratis, we have to understand we are fueling the arms race. Um, we are incentivizing the Iranians to continue to spend more money on weapons development and buildup. And so addressing Iran's ballistic missile program is not just about sanctioning them, using punitive measures to try to get them to act differently. It's also about recognizing that we're taking other steps in the region that ends up providing incentives for the Iranians to continue to grow those capacities. How does cybersecurity now factor into foreign policy, especially in light of um, the recent Russian hack? Well, we have to have both defensive and offensive capabilities here. And I I wish that weren't true. Um, But um, in order to convince the Russians or the North Koreans um, or the Chinese to stand down in their attacks against the United States, then they have to know that we have the capability uh, to launch similar attacks against them. That's ultimately, you know, I, I think an unfortunate part of our um, uh, of our policy here. Um, but uh, this is a super difficult question, one that requires a broad reorientation of our defensive arrangements as well. One of the things we have struggled with in the United States um, is how to integrate uh, public and private sector communication on cyber attacks. Um, the private sector has, in part, long fought greater integration, right? We need to be able to see when China is probing the private sector, um, whether it be industrial companies or energy companies, um, so that we can learn about those tactics to protect the broader economy and state entities. Um, And the private sector in the United States has to be open to that kind of cooperation. And then to the extent that we have to engage in pushbacks and, and, and sanctions, um, against the Chinese or the Russians, they have to be multilateral. And I, again, I feel like I'm you know, coming back to this over and over and over again, but um, the Chinese aren't going to really pay attention um, to any retributive policy unless it's coming from the United States and Europe. And right now, honestly, you know, we aren't on the same page on China with the Europeans. We can get there, but um, they decided to sort of go their own way during the last four years. So believe it or not, we're coming up to our last question. Um, and so, you know, given the fact that you're going to be in, we know that you're going to be in the impeachment trial next week. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what happened on January 6th. Um, you've written so eloquently about it. Um, and we know that the attack on the Capitol was a very dark day in our nation's history. We also know that the images of what happened at the Capitol are being broadcast all over the world over and over and over again, particularly in China, particularly in Russia. And what that does is feed into the narrative of American decline. What do we do? How do we regain our leadership back? Um, and what do you think is our, you know, our greatest hope going forward? Well, as as we were talking about Myanmar, we were talking about this, you know, global democratic backsliding, and it's happening here in the United States um, as well. There are a whole bunch of people, many of them you know, support President Trump, um, who are in the process of giving up on democracy, who are willing to listen to other offers. Um, And that's happening in other parts of the world as well. And so if we aren't in a common conversation about what ails democracy, um, then we're losing. 
uh, listen, there needs to be accountability for what happened on January 6th. Um, we have to have an impeachment process. The folks who stormed the Capitol have to go to jail. Um, but we also have to sort of step back and ask ourselves, why are so many people in this country um, willing to give up on this miraculous experiment of the last 240 years? And why does that look suspiciously like the conversation that's happening in the Philippines and Hungary and Poland um, and Turkey? And I think there are a couple answers to that. Um, in the United States, um, I think we have a particular problem in identity. You know, we had a very clear identity for most of the Cold War. Um, it has been hard for us to create that common identity um, since the fall of Soviet Russia. Um, we've got to figure out what unites us um, because we're really sure these days what divides us. But then what we have in common with, with the rest of the world is, I, I think, this. Democracy isn't working for a lot of people right now. It's creating a plutocracy in which billionaires have accumulated $1 trillion in additional wealth during a time over 2020, where 20% of our workforce was out of work or had their hours reduced, where bread lines are once again present um, on the streets of the United States. Um, and so if we don't fix democracy and make it start working for average people, folks will be justified in starting to question whether they want to invest in another form of government. So that's why the stakes this year are so big for Joe Biden. That's why so many of us believe we have to do something big, right? We have to raise the minimum wage. We have to cut childhood poverty in half. Um, we've got to beat this pandemic in a matter of months because we've got to show to America that democracy can still fix big problems. We've got to show to the world that democracy can still fix big problems. And unless we do that, no democracy promotion program that we fund through USAID is going to be able to be the moment. So um, that, I think, is our task, as big as it is, as, as gargantuan as it is uh, over the next few months. And listen, I'm just privileged that the people of Connecticut have given me the opportunity and the responsibility to be present for this moment. We're so lucky to have you, and we're so proud of everything that you're doing and, and your leadership, you know, you know, in the United States, in Connecticut, and around the world. It's, it's so important to us. And thank you so much for, uh, for being back on State of the World. Thanks for all the great work you do, Megan. I uh, appreciate joining you all. That was U.S. Senator from Connecticut and member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Chris Murphy. Follow him on Twitter at ChrisMurphyCT and check out his recent article for Foreign Policy, America Must Reclaim the Global Lead on Climate Change. That does it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For more content like this, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC or visit our website at ctwaf.org. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time.